Good morning, Highland Park. Um, it's good to be here with you this morning. I bring your greetings from three, uh, three. I'd say people, but they're probably really communities. Uh, one, I bring you greetings from College Heights Christian Church. That's where Jackie and I attend there in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, this morning, even, we were reminded of the significance of the church and the family of God. Uh, we have a vehicle, um, and we are a family of six, and so we've got this vehicle, and the low pressure sign or the low pressure indicator light came on. So I stopped at the gas station on the way here. There was a piece of metal in the tire, so I thought, oh, no. So we went back. Is that a lot of reverb there? Yeah. So maybe it's my echo. So we went back home to grab a vehicle that actually has been on loan to us from a couple of the elders, uh, the, an eldership family there at College Heights, uh, Dave and Rand Desonier. Um, when I became a Christian, one of the things that was inspiring to me was this concept that I gained a family. And I know this community is very much like that too. There are leadership families here that generously share with others. And we wouldn't be able to be here if it were not for that uh, eldership family. So greetings from College Heights, greetings from Ozark Christian College, and I'd be remiss. My job there at the college is I serve as the Vice President of uh, Development Community Relations. So on the development side, that means I do the fundraising, capital campaigns, church relations, relationship management, and on the community relations side, that means I just try to make sure that Ozark has an active presence in our local Joplin community. Um, Highland Park has been an overly generous church with us in every way, both in prayer and partnership and allowing us to have your students on loan for a season as we prepare them for Christian ministry. So thank you. And then, as Brian said, lastly, greetings from Black Box International. Um, Black Box and Ozark, I think right now, are going through some pretty incredible things. And I just encourage you all to continue to Keep, keep watch over those, those two organizations, those two, those two communities. Uh, with regard to Ozark, we've just released a new five-year strategic plan. So the next five years are going to be pretty uh, exciting for us. And with regard to Black Box, um, we are looking to establish our second home. And so that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, let me open with a word of prayer. And then I'm going to invite us into a living room for about 27 minutes here. Father, you've been good to us, and we thank you. And in this day, the Lord's Day, where we get to celebrate fatherhood, we thank you for fathering us and giving us an example. Father, I pray for your help, that you would speak through me clearly, and that you would inspire my friends here at Highland Park and that together we might be made more in the likeness of Jesus. Amen. So there are a number of metaphors in the scripture. Metaphors like the Lord is a strong tower. Metaphors like um, the Lord is my shepherd. There are metaphors like I am the vine, you are the branches. Metaphors like uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Metaphors often help us to see things more clearly that cannot be expressed with mere words. C.S. Lewis said this, We are forced to use language metaphorically when speaking about things that transcend our senses. 
that transcend our senses. Of all the metaphors in the Bible, I think the metaphor of family is the most significant metaphor. Kyle Eidelman, uh, a couple years ago at Ozarks uh, Preaching and Teaching, uh, was sharing with us this idea of controlling metaphors. He says, when I counsel married couples, I try to understand what is the controlling metaphor between their marriage, i.e., if they use words like, I feel like he just attacks me. I feel like she's defensive. What is the metaphor? War. And if I can get them to move from a metaphor, a controlling metaphor of war, to a controlling metaphor of maybe a dance, we have helped them to learn to give and take. So these metaphors exist all throughout Scripture. And there's this metaphor of the family that I think is preeminent. It's there in Genesis 1, right? So God creates Adam and Eve, and then he says to Adam, and you will leave your mother and father, and you will cleave to this woman as your wife, right? He establishes the family. You're going to do this, this. And then when we get into the New Testament, all throughout Scripture, it's there. We get in the New Testament, I think it becomes even more preeminent with regard to Jesus. So Jesus, in the beginning of the Gospels, he calls James and John away from their father to himself. And oftentimes we think that he calls them away from their father to go do something. But I don't believe that's the case. He calls them away from their father, family, to himself, a new family, and they happen to have a mission that they will accomplish. And you see this established throughout the rest of the Gospels. So that when you get to the end, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, for slaves don't know his master's will, but I call you friends, right? And then he looks at John while he's hanging on the cross, and he says, John, here is your mother. Woman, here is your son. He's continuously establishing this concept of a family. Now, for, oh, the last two years I've been at Ozark, but for the previous 11 years, I was in the business world. I did different things. I worked at uh, Vanderbilt University most recently. And what I learned when I was there is that businesses want to be anything, I should say this, high-performing businesses want to be anything but a family, right? When they're little and small, when they're entrepreneurial, the family metaphor is very important. But as they get bigger, they want to grow out of being a family. Netflix does this so boldly that they have, if you can Google it, you can Google it, um, 188 slides, and one of their slides says something like this. We are not a family, we are a team. And we are not your peewee league team, we are your pro sports team. So we will hire this way, we will fire this way, we will act this way, right? And a lot of times we get behind that and we say, yes, that's what I want to be a part of. But I ask myself, why? If the highest metaphor we have is family, why would we trade in the greater for something lesser, like a pro sports team? To which I think many of us know why. Our families are dysfunctional, right? Like, in our families, we're not our most creative. In our families, we argue and yell. And in our families, we're not very respectful sometimes. And in our, fa in our families, there's all kinds of things you see, in our families, we have conversations where we have to call the kids into the living room. Kids, 
your mom and I need to talk with you. And sometimes that looks like you need to know that Papa has passed away. It's hard. Sometimes it's, kids, I need to talk with you. Your dad has passed. That's hard. And in a group this size, it's probably true that there was a conversation or two that said, kids, your mom and I need to talk with you. We're getting a divorce. And we feel the weight of family and we want to trade it in for something lesser. God fathers us so that we may know the redeeming power of his love. The title of this message is Brian, being who Brian is, sent me a note, I don't know, six months ago. And he said, hey, would you like to come over and share? I said, sure. And he says, we, we're wanting to say something. God saves, you fill in the blank, and then what does it look like? And the title came out, God Saves the Fatherless, the story of Jesus. But do we consider Jesus fatherless? You see, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, Joseph and Mary had a conversation like that in their living room at some point. Jesus, we need to talk with you. And Jesus came in and he sat down and Joseph looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, I want you to know that I love you. You are the light of my world. <laughs> and Mary may have looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, we need you to know Joseph's not your daddy. I'd never really thought of that concept, that they would have had this conversation. Right? The scripture says in Luke, it actually says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. He, he may have known something inside was always different, but the scripture also says in Hebrews that he was The great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way. Everything that we may have experienced at some point, it seems so providential, sometimes so fatherlike that God the Father would send his son to be fully human and that at some point Jesus would have had to sit in his living room with his mom and dad and hear somebody tell him, I'm not your dad. And what would he have felt? Would he have felt the insecurity of, well, who is my dad? I don't know. Maybe not. Would he, have, he would have certainly felt where does that leave me? Where's my place in this? You see, fatherhood is about lending strength. Fatherhood is about lending strength. 
John Eldridge says, you know you're a man when someone you believe is a man tells you you're a man. Masculinity is bestowed, not endowed. Right? We don't get to be men because we have testosterone flowing in our bodies. We get to be men when someone we believe is a man tells us we're a man. The unfortunate part about that is that it's true both in the negative as well in the positive. My story is pretty hard. I grew up in the inner city of Chicago, single mom. Dad was semi-present, but not there. Every other weekend, unless work got there, unless there was something else that came up, like a Chicago Bulls game, unless, you know, that was, that was my journey. And when I was a little guy living in the inner city of Chicago, and I was invited to go do whatever it was that was unsavory and not moral, whether that was fighting, whether that was trying to pursue some young ladies, whether that was stealing, when those older guys looked at me and said, you're a shorty, what did I think? I thought, well, that's what it is to be a man. And what God has taught me is that that's not true, is that that's what it is to be a lesser man. And we constantly face these battles where we're trying to trade in what is greater for the lesser, but if we don't know, it easily becomes our reality, right? So fast forward. I'm 18 years old. I'm a freshman in college, and I meet a friend. I meet a friend, and he invites me to go fishing and Filipino food. So that was Ricky Markham. His mom was Filipino. She was from Hawaii. She had met Ricky's dad while he was in the Navy a long time ago. And Ricky invites me over to his home, and he says, hey, would you want to go fishing, and would you want to eat some Filipino food? And that, that is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus for me. And we go fishing, and we eat Filipino food, and I come down. Ricky's family invited me to come down to Ozark Christian College to help Ricky's brother-in-law move there. He was getting out of the army, and Reuben was going to go study ministry at Ozark. So I drive Reuben's uh, blue, I think it was like a 90 Camaro, which was really cool. And um, I drive it down, and we attend an ambassador's rally. And as we're attending this ambassador's rally, afterwards, uh, I attend as a sponsor because I'm too old to attend as a student. Um, there is a message given. It's the first Protestant gospel message that I, I can understand, at least, hearing. Think of that. 18 years old in the United States of America, the first Protestant gospel message that I had heard. And so the preacher gave an invitation and I thought, well, if he's inviting me out to go, my heart, I remember looking down, my heart was pounding so hard I could see my shirt moving. And then as I got up and walked, it was like slow motion. I remember the people I was there with looking at me almost like, what is he doing? <laughs> Sometimes we do that, right? Like the gospel is preached. It does not return in vain. If we will preach it, there will be a response. And so I walked forward, and I went down, and that began this journey of reading through the Gospel of Luke. Ricky's dad came down, and he lent me a green living Bible, living translation Bible. And every day I would read a chapter, and then I would read the next chapter and read a little bit of the last chapter that I'd read. That was fall of 98. 
February 25th of 1999, my brother and I uh, found that our father had passed in our home. He had died of a massive heart attack. And life for me became very fleeting and very fragile. And that was the catalyst that God used in my life to make me step toward Jesus. Interestingly, it was also the thing that caused my brother to step away from Jesus. And for 17 years, he wandered, and praise God, a year and a half ago, he came to know the Lord through faith and baptism. And so, pretty awesome. Um, so I stepped towards Jesus. I went to Ozark Christian College, and I began to study the Bible, right? Ozark makes you take a Bible entrance exam. In that Bible entrance exam, they ask a bunch of questions. Questions like, how many books of the Bible are there? Do you know who Paul is? Do you know who Timothy is? Um, then really obscure things like northern kingdoms and kings. I knew none of that. I didn't know who Paul was. I didn't know who Timothy was. I couldn't tell you how many books of the Bible there were. Um, I got Jesus, and that was about it. <laughs> and I was there for a year, and about three weeks into that first year, somebody said, hey, Sergio, I think you should intern at my church. Are you all familiar with Tyro Christian Church in Tyro, Kansas? Many people in this area tend to be. Um, rural community, I think the town of Tyro is like 250 people, but the church is around 1,100. Just a fantastic work of God. I didn't know that when he offered me, where he invited me to do this internship. So I, I looked at Jeremy and I said, Jeremy, I don't even know what it is to be a Christian. I ain't got no business trying to lead young people in Jesus. He kept pursuing me. By the second semester, I realized I had two options. I could go back home which wasn't a good option for me, or I could find something to do. And so I said, Jeremy, is your church still looking for an intern? And he said, yeah, and I interviewed. And then when I went to Tyro is when I first realized how big Tyro was, and I got really nervous then. Um, and by God's grace, they had not at that point ever had a freshman intern. They always looked towards upperclassmen. They invited me to be their intern, and God captured my heart, and I interned there for a year, for the summer, and they invited me for a year, then we did a mission. But I had all my first church experiences as an intern, right? Freshman in college, let me give you this, this word of advice. Get to college, find a church. Get to college, find a church. Because you're going to get to college, you're going to find a bunch of friends who are knuckleheads just like you are in that early season of life. And if you do not have an anchor, you will find yourself in places you never thought you'd be. Get to college, find a church. Well, at Ozark, I got to college and I found my bed. And so I didn't go to church on Sunday mornings very often until I got to Tyro. And then that was my first consistent church experience. When I was baptized in Chicago, I um, oftentimes would work on Sundays at a bank. And so I didn't go to church then. My, my church was Thursday night youth group. So to those of you who provide places like that here at Highland, praise God. But I went to church camp. My first church camp experiences was as an intern. My first VBS experience was as an intern. My first tractor pull was as an intern. Uh, for those, um, that was culture shock in every way from a, a city boy from Chicago. Um, but God captured my heart there for ministry. I ended up staying for four years at Ozark. Met Jackie, my wife. We've now been married 17 years. But something happened my sophomore year at Ozark Christian College. I had an uncle who called me, uh, Uncle Vince. This was his third stint in prison. He had just been released. 
and we were reconnecting. And Uncle Vince called me from Las Vegas, and he said, mijo, which just is a Spanish term of endearment, me meaning my, and hijo son, so it's like my son. He says, mijo, I've never lied to you, and I think it's time you should know that your dad is not your dad. So I'm 22 years old. I'm mourning a man that I shouldn't be mourning and I feel like my life is a lie. My mom has lied to me. My dad has lied to me. My family's lied to me. And I'm mad. I'm just mad, and I'm hurt. When I was little, my grandparents, when we would go over to their, their place, my dad's parents, um, my brother looks just like my dad. He's a little mini-me, right? And we're a proud Mexican family, so when we would go over there every other weekend, they would wake my brother up and take him to the flea market, or they'd wake him up and they would take him out to breakfast. Or During Christmas, he always got maybe one or two things more than I got, right? And I never really understood that. My dad actually went to them once, and he says, if you're not going to treat both my boys the same, you're not going to see either one. But now it made sense. You're not going to treat the true blood like the illegitimate kid, are you? That's just not what we do. When I look at this metaphor called family, and I see the journey that the Lord has taken me on, and I recognize our living rooms, and we have had some tough times in our living rooms, this is what I know, is that my dad in life loved me the same as my brother. And in his death, he left me half the inheritance. Of what I know of God, that is the gospel. In life, he loves us the same as Jesus. And in death, he calls us heirs and co-heirs with the Christ. People, can I tell you that if we could just grasp that, that that is what we have been given, you see, the scripture calls it something like this. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's children. And since you are his children, God has made you also an heir. You see, my dad wasn't a godly man, but God used him to show me what the gospel would be. In the book of Joshua, when it ends, or Joseph, in the book of Genesis, in the story of jo Joseph ends, 
Scripture says this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's our story. This is the first Father's Day sermon I've ever preached. Um, It might be the last. We'll see. (laughs) But this is what I know of what it is to be a father, is that I've got four children, and I love them with all my heart. There is nothing I won't do to protect them and provide for them, right? God has imparted to me the responsibility to lend them things that they don't yet have until one day they can have it on their own. So I lend them courage. I lend them faith. I lend them discipline and responsibility. I lend them love and compassion and grace. I lend them fierce passion. And one day, they're going to grow up and they're going to go have that all on their own. And I want to ask our men in the room to recognize that God, so in the book of Matthew, it says, who of you, if your son asks for fish or bread, will give him a stone or a snake? And if you who are evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? Like, God is constantly showing us that this is what it is to be a father. I look around the community here, and it's really exciting to see the number of expecting moms. That's one good church growth strategy, right? You've got to have a lot of expecting mamas, right? But there are people in this church who need you to adopt them. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we go out and we find them. That is not how the world believes about love, right? Jackie and I were in the foster care process, and we have yet to finish it. And we one day are hopeful to adopt because that's our story, and we feel like God has placed that in our hearts. And we've had good-meaning people, well-meaning people come up to us from time to time and say, you know, I just don't know that I could ever do that because I'm not sure I could love my adopted son or daughter like I love. And I think to myself, and I try to hold my tongue, and sometimes I don't. You're right. From a human perspective, you probably can't. But if you captured the love of God and knew that that is what your story is, is that he loved you and he took you and he elevated us to heirs and co-heirs with the Christ, Blows me away every time I think about that. And then he says this, go do likewise. Your job as a Christian man is to love these children with the love of God. And then he says, you go find other children and you elevate them to family. Sometimes we wrestle with that because we're like, well, if I love other children like I love my children, then my children won't know that I love them. And I think to myself, love knows no capacity right? It will actually show your children the true love of God. It is not easy, this journey we call the Christian walk. It's not. But we get to do it. And I see you fathers in the room, and I thank you because so many of you have heritages of faith. You're faithful, righteous men. You pray for this church. You serve this church. You serve your neighbors. You go out like someone did to us, and they lend us their vehicle, because they have three of them, and there's only two of them, and they don't need it to just sit there. And they, the Desoniers, get to share in Highland Park this morning 
in the ministry of the gospel. The family sometimes can be a difficult place. But don't trade what is greater for something lesser. Actually, step into it and we will find that God, when he calls us heirs and co-heirs and elevates us into his family, gives us the opportunity to then go do that on his behalf. And redemption happens in the midst of those broken stories. Who would have thought being an illegitimate child would be the preeminent message that I would know about the gospel of Jesus? Only in God, people. Only in God. Let's pray. Father, this is your church. And you have established it in love and righteousness, and that's evident. They not only pursue each other, but they pursue orphans and boys who have been sex trafficked in other countries. And you are working out salvation here. I pray over my brothers and sisters that they might not that they might know more fully your love for them that they might capture the adoption that they have received in Jesus and that they might go do likewise, elevating one another into family. And good God, would you help us not to trade in what is lesser for what is greater. Thank you for giving us a family, giving us this family. Pray this in Jesus. Amen.